And so I just want to talk a little bit about um, a, a little bit about disruption. You know, one of the things that 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 has happened in the the last couple of months for all of us is a major disruption in our confidence, a major significant disruption in our confidence. When we started uh, looking, when 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 this virus was first kind of on the horizon for our country. We were looking at it. Many of us were looking at it in late February. Uh, some of us were looking at it in early March, and we were saying to ourselves, "Looks serious," but some people were saying it will never come here. And and, and then there were other people that that was looking at it and saying, yeah, "It doesn't doesn't even look that bad. Um, it doesn't even look that significant." And then there were other people that were saying, "Maybe maybe bad, possibly bad. It possibly could come here." But we have it all under control. And then it came. And, and, and now, literally three, going on three months later, what we, have, what we have received is a shock to our collective systems of confidence. We have seen over 80,000 people die from this virus. We have seen a million plus cases of this virus in less than three months. And what we've come to realize that, we've come to realize that many of the things that we find security in don't really secure us at all. Our unemployment rate is at record highs. Our, we literally, our cities have come to a standstill. When you look, when you look at pictures of, 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 of New York and you look, look, look at pictures of some of the main throughways and some of the main streets in New York City, they are literally empty right now. Our entire nation has been put on pause. Many of the things that we used to find protection in and that we thought we could find protection in, we realized don't really protect us. This pandemic has shown us that we are not nearly in as much control of our own destinies as we would like to think that we are. You know, as we've mentioned and as we've worked through our study in Lamentations, what we've, what we've seen is that the devastation of Jerusalem has produced a major humbling in the people of Israel. There has been a collective shock to their systems of confidence. All the sources that brought them pride, all the sources that brought them security and safety have been disrupted and have been removed. And Lamentations 4 is another deep dive into how the Lord can shake our securities and shake our confidence in lesser things and how he can produce out of that shaking and out of that confidence, uh, out of that shaking of our confidence and securities, a great humbling when it is needed and when it's necessary. Verses 1 through 10, for example, show us that this humbling or show us this humbling through a comparison to what once was to what now is. First, we see the humbling through the wealth that once was, but now has vanished. Looking at verse 1 through 5, you hear it, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed, the Holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street, the precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breasts. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted in delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple 
embrace ash heaps. These people once had luxurious and heaping amounts of precious metal and gold. The wealth of the temple, the, 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 the pinnacle of, of religious symbology was abundant. The, in verse 2, we hear that even the people, the precious sons of Zion, were well off and they were well established. You see, this was a people that collectively just looked like money and prosperity. Verse 1 and 2, they show, they show us that this economic abundance exists not only in the secular, but it exists in the religious circles. It's in the temple, the holy stones that lie scattered at the head of every street. What has happened to all of this wealth? It's been utterly destroyed. The economy, both in the secular and in the religious, has been totally uprooted. The wealth of the temple has been disregarded and now appears like Dollar Tree jewelry. Those who were once decked out in purple fabrics, the equivalent of Armani and Gucci fashion, are, in other words, now, or, or in other words, that, that, that standard of royalty, that standard of high-class clothing and living, they're now robed in ashes. Those who once feasted on delicacies, in other words, they spent their money dining in five stars, five star restaurants and, 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 and eating in Ruth Chris steakhouses are now, are now dying in the streets from starvation. In fact, in verse three, we see animals that we normally consider wild and untamed taking better care of their young than these once high-class, sophisticated folks are taking care of theirs. In this loss of wealth, we learn a lot. For one, we learn that levels of compassion and decency are often tied to our privilege and our wealth. We've already seen this in verse 3 and verse 4, where the animals are doing a better job showing compassion to their young than the mothers of Jerusalem are showing compassion to theirs. But there is no other scripture that brings this particular point to light in a more depressing way than verse 10. It says, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their, boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. This certainly carries a particular heaviness on Mother's Day as we read how these mothers who once demonstrated great compassion towards their vulnerable children are boiling them alive, or boiling them at least, for supper. The tighter their wallets and purses have become, the more these people are willing to sacrifice the vulnerable for their own survival. In his book, Prophetic Lament, Sung Chun Ra captures this moment with these words. He says that the impact of the siege of Jerusalem is that there is a lessening of the value of people. Children, once considered a blessing and normally valued for their economic contributions to the family and for their family's continuity, become a liability during a siege because they must be fed and cared for. He continues that the horrific image of compassionate women doing an unspeakable act causes the reader to recoil at the depths to which the citizens of Jerusalem have fallen. And lastly, he says this lament over injustice perpetrated on innocent victims reminds us that those most vulnerable children 
are often the first casualties of natural disaster, war, or famine, end quote. We see this in our own country as our children become expendable through acts and institutions like abortion clinics, or even through the rampant physical and spiritual and emotional neglect that so many experience in the name of their own parents' survival or in the name of the pursuit of more. But we see this current pandemic has shined new spotlights on our ability to lessen the value of people during the times of trial. You see, as the economy is threatened more and unemployment continues to climb, you are now hearing people say things like, we must reopen no matter the cost. Now, I'm not talking about those that are seeking measured ways to see an economy open while protecting the vulnerable. I mean, we, we understand that these are difficult times and difficult decisions, and so we understand that people are working hard to try to balance the two, protect the vulnerable and open the economy. I'm not speaking to those folks. But I am talking to the people who are outwardly silent but are inwardly screaming, it doesn't matter to me what happens to the senior citizens around me. I can't afford for my 401k or I can't afford for my retirement account to suffer any more blows. For many, our compassion towards and treatment of the vulnerable around us is most tested when our personal livelihood is on the line. And it is for this reason that we should give double honor this morning to the mothers who are left with so little in life and yet offer their children so much. It is for this reason that we must celebrate the mothers who, in the face of, 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 of lack, love their children well and take from their own mouths to ensure, them, uh, to ensure their children have bread to eat. Many don't think much of the mother with so little, but here we see it is precisely in those moments that motherhood is truly tested and most prominently on display. It is in those moments where motherhood most closely resembles the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the gospel story tells us that we receive the benefits of salvation as a result of Jesus emptying himself. The gospel tells us that he became poor in order that we might be made rich. The gospel shows us that Jesus's compassion towards us increased in the moments of his earthly lack. He didn't shy away in lack towards us or he didn't shy in compassion towards us in lack. He showed compassion all the more in lack. Unfortunately, here the daughters of Jerusalem who were once compassionate in times of plenty, have turned to cannibalism in times of lack. They are willing to boil their own children to preserve their own lives. But this text also teaches us a few more very uncomfortable and inconvenient truths regarding wealth and our dependence on it and confidence in it. Wealth and prosperity, for example, is not a telltale sign of righteousness and obedience. These people who once possessed great wealth are now left with no wealth at all. They were wealthy but disregarded God's law greatly, and now God is humbling them to bring them back to himself. In a country like ours, where we look to our wealth and prosperity as clear signs that we are in God's will, what if 
Sometimes our opulence and sometimes our consumerism reflects more of our distance from God than our closeness. Is, it wealth, is, is wealth really a sign of blessing when it leads to selfishness and hoarding and disregard for those with less than? But there's another truth also that we learn in this text concerning wealth, and that is this. Our wealth cannot and should not be depended on to save us. Our wealth, our wealth cannot and should not be depended on to save us. In the blink of an eye, their gold is worthless. Their Armani and their Gucci are shreds. And instead of their bellies being full, they are now empty and famished. What they thought would bring them protection and security and stability has been snatched from them in a blink of an eye. American Christians are especially comforted or confronted, rather, with this tension. Everything and everyone around us are encouraging us in this direction, the pursuit of more. The pursuit of more drives so much of what we do and so much of who we are. You know, we don't vocalize this with our mouths, but with our actions, we often articulate the belief that our wealth will save us that we have the ultimate confidence in what we possess. And God in this moment is shaking us loose from this truth. No, your wealth does not, cannot, and will not rescue you. Only I can, and only I will. But we see not only the confidence they once had in wealth being destroyed, but the confidence that they once had in their beauty and their appearance and their health also being diminished. We see that in verse 7. It says, her princes, talking about the princes, princes of Jerusalem, were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their faces blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Their skin was once well tanned and smooth and healthy. Now it is shriveled and dry and dehydrated. They no longer even resemble their old selves. People no longer can tell who they are. The physical beauty and strength that they once portrayed and possessed has been removed and their outer appearance now reflects the appearance of their hearts, the hearts that has led to the condition that they're in, dry, shriveled, and dark. Everything they may have trusted in before has been taken from them. This confidence that they possessed in themselves and this confidence that they possessed in their appearance and in their health and in their wealth was not only a confidence that they themselves possessed about themselves, but it was a confidence that others possessed about them. You see it in verse 12. The kings of the earth did not believe nor any of the inhabitants of the world that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. The nations didn't think that this could happen to them. Their greatness was so well established and so well known that no one thought they had a chance of falling. 
But brothers and sisters, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. You see, those who don't believe that they can be brought low oftentimes are very much the people who will be brought low. You see it in verse 13, it says, This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers, and people said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. No one thought that they could be brought low. Now, no one will even touch them. They who were once seen as the prized possessions of the land are are now seen and treated as filthy, dirty, unclean, and unwanted. You see, in this moment where Jerusalem is in most need of a hand, they discover that not even the help of a nation can bring them the security that they are so desperately seeking. In verse 17, it says, Our eyes have failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watch for a nation which could not save. Israel wasn't even able to find security in another group of people. All of the other sources of security have been stripped from them to the point that they are left with nowhere else to turn to and no one else to turn to but God. Lamentations is a warning against the pride that comes when we trust more in all the other things the world tells us will bring us security rather than the only one who is able to actually truly offer it through his son. Our wealth, our beauty, our health, our political and our social power and capital can all be snatched from us in an instant. Our systems of confidence can be shaken to their foundations. You know, Jesus once told a parable warning about the foolishness in believing wealth or anything else could offer us true security or could offer us the only security that he can. In Luke chapter 12, he tells that parable. He says, but he said to them, or he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetedness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself 
and is not rich toward God. The man with more goods than he could literally hold found out that night that nothing in his barns could give him the security that he craved. Only God could give him that. Israel and the devastation of their city has discovered that nothing that they possessed could give them the security that they craved. Not wealth, not beauty, not health, not social or political power. Nothing could give them the security that they craved. Only God could do that. And this is a lesson that we would all do well to learn. Jesus' final words in that passage in Luke chapter 12, bear repeating and remembering. But God said to him, fool, this night is required. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Family, this lament takes me back to the old gospel song whose lyrics said, only what you do for Jesus Christ will last. Everything else will fade. We can spend all of our lives accumulating this false sense of security through our wealth and through our beauty and through our health and, and, and through our power that we accumulate on this earth. But our security is not found. Our true security is not found in any of those things. It is only found in one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if someone wants to hit the pause button on your life right now, where would they say your hope truly lay? Where would they, where would they say you, you were placing your trust? Where would they say you were, you were or establishing your security? What do you ultimately trust in? To humble Israel and to show them where their hope and security should ultimately lie, God has allowed a stronger enemy to come along and to overthrow them. In this moment, he is showing them that wealth, beauty, health, power, and even powerful alliances cannot save you, only I can. But lest we think that the enemy that he has used to do this will go untouched, we get these words in verse 19 through 22. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of us. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish he will uncover your sins. This text cuts against the notion that only the strong shall survive. No, only the righteous will survive. The strong that overthrows another but does so with unrighteous means will eventually face its own demise. No power that seeks to exalt itself above the throne of God will ever stand. And while it appears sometimes that a kingdom rises up or that a person has gained the upper hand over another through unrighteous means, it is only a matter of time before God humbles that kingdom or God humbles that person. 
There is no security or final reward gained through unrighteous demonstrations of power. You see, when we seek security through corrupt means, we will eventually reap the due penalty for or from that corruption. We need to be reminded of this because sometimes when we see someone seemingly win in the game of life by playing dirty, we convince ourselves that the only way to win is to play dirty like them. And we see it happen professionally and we see it happen politically and we see it happen in our personal lives. We see it happen in our relationships. Oftentimes in our relationships, we see people who lack righteousness that tend to get the upper hand. And we say to ourselves, why am I putting forth all of this energy and all this effort pursuing righteous means and still getting hurt? If so many people around me can put forth no effort towards righteousness and still turn out all right. Why am I doing it? But thinking this way misses the point that Lamentation shows us here in chapter 4. Those who are contributing to Jerusalem's demise will not be held guiltless. One standard of unrighteous living will not be spared while another goes punished. God may use one unrighteous nation to judge his own nation, but he will eventually judge that nation as well if they continue in their wickedness. You may have been left hurt by the wrongs of another But don't think for one second that the best way to live your life in response to that hurt is to wrong others, since it appears that no harm comes to those who live this way. Just like Israel's sin has found them out in Lamentations, Jeremiah is reminding us that this nation, who is the source of Israel's pain, will too be judged for their unrighteousness, their sin will be uncovered as well. Even when unrighteous power seems to win for a time, never assume that it has won completely. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. In other words, in the timeline of eternity, righteousness will always have the final Say. So if we don't resort to unrighteousness, what lesson are we to learn from the fourth chapter of Lamentations? Verse 22 says this, the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. The prophet declares that the, that, that the people, uh, that, that Jerusalem's suffering will eventually end. That the punishment has been accomplished. And the question is, why does he declare that? Well, he declares that because in their punishing, their hearts and their focus has turned back towards God. You see, this is the aim and the end of God, of God's bringing this judgment to Jerusalem. The intent is to show them that the confidence they have placed in their wealth, in their beauty, in their health, in their power, in their reputation, in their alliances have all been misplaced. 
There is only one place that we can find security. There is only one place that we can find safety, and that is in Christ. And what's amazing about that is that in, is that in order to, to, secu- to secure salvation for us, he did, he did it absent of all of those things. He did it absent of wealth, for Scripture tells us that he became poor for our sake. He did it absent of beauty because Isaiah 53 tells us that he had no stately form or majesty to attract us, no, uh, no beauty that we should desire him. He did it absent of strength. He was so weakened to the point of needing help carrying his own cross up Calvary's hill. He did it absent of reputation and alliances. We see in the end that he was abandoned and abandoned by most and betrayed by some on the way to his death. And yet he rose from the grave and in doing so, he demonstrated that he didn't need any of those things to save us. He himself by himself was sufficient to save us. He demonstrated that we could turn to him and find the confidence and security that we are so desperately seeking, that we could turn to him and simply in him find the rest, the safety, and the salvation that we so desire. So where do we find our confidence in this life? Where do we find our security in this life? Where do we find our safety in our rest? When a pandemic is swarming around us, we find it in him. Turn to him. Place your trust and your hope in him. Call on his name for salvation and you will be saved. And in that, we can have the utmost confidence. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we give you all the praise and all the glory and honor. And Father, we pray that in the midst of great turmoil, great trials and tribulation, that we can have confidence in your son, and in his perfect work to bring us salvation. Father, if there be any that do not know you this morning, I ask and I pray that your spirit would awaken their affections for you. Turn their heart, Lord God, towards your son and let them embrace him by faith. Let them repent, Lord God, of their sin and turn from their own way of living to embrace him, his way, his rule, his reign in their lives. Father, we want to also pray a prayer of blessing for our mothers. We ask, Lord God, that on this day, even in the midst of all that's going on around us, we ask and we pray, Lord God, that their hearts would be refreshed today, that they would be renewed, that they would be strengthened, that they would be encouraged, that they would know that they are loved first first and foremost by you, but that they are also appreciated by many. And so, Father, would you shower them with gratitude on today? God, we love you so much. And we thank you, Lord God, for all things. 
none more than your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.